0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Kees van Diemte about his recent book, Computational Models of Referring, which takes a close look at the generation of referring expressions in language, something that has historically presented important philosophical and practical challenges. In this interview, we discuss the goals of computational work in this area, and how it can illuminate our understanding of human speakers' communicative capabilities. We consider what makes a referring expression efficient and appropriate, and we look at some notably difficult cases, including those in which speakers appeal to common knowledge about the world in order to successfully identify reference. I'm delighted to welcome Kees van Dinter to talk about his recent book, Computational Models of Referring. Kees, what motivated you to write this book?
1: I felt that there was a a gap there in the literature. Uh, You can find, uh, obviously, lots of journal papers, conference presentations about, about aspects of the problem of modeling how people refer. There's even a, uh, a nice survey paper on the computational side of that problem. But no one had told the story from different points of view, bringing everything together from experimental psychology from computing indeed from linguistics and i felt that that could lead to a really new and interesting story with new questions and, and new answers here and there yes indeed
0: um so what are the what are the features of reference in particular as, as a topic that make it such an interesting challenge for this sort of integrated cognitive science approach
1: yeah that's a good question uh I've sometimes been surprised um, looking at parts of the literature about the sheer body of work that focuses on on referring expressions. Why have people who are interested in language so often ended up focusing on reference? So you can start with philosophers, for example, uh, going back to even the 19th century, right? Uh, Frege, Russell when they started theorizing about language, very often they ended up saying more about referring expressions than about anything else. Uh, The famous examples like uh, the King of France, right? What happens when we say that when France doesn't have a king, etc.? Historically important example. So that's, that's philosophers. But equally, if you look at uh, psycholinguists, what what parts of language they have studied a lot. And again, right, if you want to know how one speaker takes the knowledge of the hearer into account, then what people ended up looking at in many cases is what referring expressions the speaker produces and how the hearer understands them. So there's simply so much and, and and it's for a good reason, isn't isn't it? Because reference seems to be so simple and so clear. So you, if you start to 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 try to understand how language works, it's an obvious idea that you can have is let's start with referring expressions because we know exactly what they do. Their aim is for me to make clear to you what I'm talking about, what person what car, what idea, that's the aim of a referring expression. So at least we understand that.
0: As you say, there's a great deal of philosophical history behind the topic, and Mm. there's now increasingly much experimental linguistic work that also touches upon this. Uh, How well do you feel that these approaches fit with the computational trend in work that's sort of central to the book?
1: At first sight, they don't match very well. I think on closer inspection, uh, they fit quite well. Often, let me give an example. In the computational literature, you seldom read about the Strauss and russell debate in, in in philosophy. On the other hand, if you look at computational algorithms, uh, the algorithms have tried to come to terms with how people refer. It's quite clear that they use Strawson's approach, not Russell's approach. So Russell's approach basically was to say, uh, when I have a referring expression, it makes a statement, right? When I say the king of France is bold, I say there exists one king of France, and yes, he is bold, right? That's basically, in a nutshell, uh, Russell's position. Strawson's position was to, to distinguish between two different kinds of things that an utterance like that does. One is indeed making a statement. That's the bold part. The other is subtly different. It presupposes something, right? It doesn't assert that France has exactly one king. It rather assumes this, presupposes it, right? So that's basically the Strawson position, and if you look at algorithms that model how people speak, then you can see that same distinction there so if you look at these these uh, computer programs that model human referring expressions generation, then they make use of two different databases: one database expresses what hearer and speaker share in terms of their information the other has information that only the speaker possesses. So it's the former which you use to produce the referring expression itself, like the King of France for example, or the cup on the table or whatever it is Uh, and it's the other database that you then use to convey additional information like France is bold, or the cup on the table is mine, or whatever. Right? Yes. So, going back to your question, no one in the computational literature ever referred to the Russell-Strausson debate, and yet you can say in quite a clear-cut way what position computational algorithms take in that debate,
0: there are presumably a couple of different things that one could try to do computationally, one of which is to to model human use of referring expressions, and another being to model how, if you will, one should use referring expressions, or referring expressions should be used by, say, an automated system to achieve maximal effect with maybe a human uh, hearer. Yes, absolutely. What's the, what's the sort of balance of, of power between those two approaches in computational literature?
1: More emphasis on the former than on the latter on the whole so the bulk of work certainly until recently has focused on trying to model speakers trying to simulate what speakers do when they refer but there is a there's a substantial and growing body of work that has taken the other uh, perspective the perspective where as you say you try to design algorithms that produce referring expressions that are optimal for, for heroes, yeah. Um, and it's sort, of, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of computational work traditionally has a very practical context, right? System building, NLG systems, so systems that do natural language generation, all kinds of practical applications. And you would think from that perspective... What you want is to produce useful expressions. Who cares what speakers do? All we care about is how whoever hearers are going to understand what you say, right? Uh, And yet, if you look at the computational literature, it's the other way around. It has traditionally taken the speaker's perspective. If you look a little bit more closely, right, if you take out your magnifying glass, then, for a long time, I suppose people haven't really, people in the computational uh, area, didn't really ask your question. They didn't distinguish between the two perspectives. But if you read between the lines, and if you look at the first experiments that were then actually done, then yes, they took the, the speaker's perspective.
0: I guess there's a point of view that would say that you could achieve something that was beyond the scope of most NLG accomplishments if you were able just to model, I say just, if you were able to model uh, the speaker's behaviour, normal human speaker's behaviour. Um, but do you see those as being, you know, do you see human likeness as a route to that kind of you know successful NLG system or would you see those paths as diverging somewhere along the way?
1: I guess... There are two possible answers, yes. I, I can definitely understand. If someone says my ultimate aim is to please hearers, right, to produce referring expressions that are good for hearers, uh, but as a shortcut, I'm going to simulate the behavior of human speakers, that's, that's, that's acceptable, isn't it? That's, if you think people do this rather well, so why not? why not imitate them? On the other hand, it is known that people are often far from optimal in how they how they refer. So ultimately, if you're interested in hearers understanding well, reliably, and quickly what you mean, then imitating speakers is not the best you can do. So this, for example, one line of work which uh, is quite interesting, which uh, one chapter of the book is, is about. So at some point, we'd done an experiment in which we um, had found out how, how people refer in some simple situations. Let's call them the tuna experiment. And people in our community, in the natural language generation community, sort of started to adopt that model and what they what they did is organize uh, an international competition in which people could submit their algorithms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and these algorithms were then tested, tested on our corpus, tested in terms of how? how well did each algorithm simulate human-referring behavior, okay? So some algorithms did better than others, right? And then next, what these people did is they they compared these same algorithms in terms of the how useful referring expressions that they produced are for hearers. And what they found that there's essentially no correlation between the two rankings, right? Some of the algorithms that did best in terms of simulation didn't do very well in terms of usefulness for the hearer at all and the other
0: way back. Hmm, interesting. So when we say that the algorithms that are human-like aren't necessarily best for hearers, or you know, when we say that human speakers aren't necessarily optimal in the way they use referring expressions, what kind of thing do we mean? Is it possible to point to examples of suboptimality from a communicative point of view, or is it something we'd rather know when we hear it?
1: Well, so one, one area where you see this is in fairly complicated situations where it's simply very difficult to to keep track of all the different distractors that, that there are. So let me give you one example. If I try to point out to you where I live, maybe you're going to come over to our place to have dinner, right? Then... As a first approximation, you might think, give the guy a unique referring expression. Tell him something that identifies the place, and that'll do, right? But actually, uh, what we find is that a lot of the referring expressions that you're then going to produce, and some some of these might easily be produced by people as well, are going to wrong-foot the hearer in a big way. So suppose I live in the longest street in Aberdeen, right? Uh, we live in Aberdeen, so suppose it's the longest street there, and suppose we live towards the end. And if that's the case, then the street number alone identifies the, the house, okay? Yet it would be ridiculous to say that because you would have to know all of Aberdeen to find that, that house, Okay. So that, that shows that uniqueness alone is not enough. I'm not suggesting that human speakers would be quite as clumsy referring as I, as I just was hypothetically. But it's an example of a kind of situation where you need quite an algorithmically smart algorithm to find the optimum. Where you don't give people a ridiculous amount of information, but you give them enough So that they can quickly find the reference.
0: Yeah. Uh, Leaping ahead in the book, you you cite some examples on page 278 of where algorithms struggle to integrate common knowledge, which you could usefully use to refer. Yes. Where this distinction is made between a human producing uh, a description for Charles Darwin uh, that said, this person is considered the father of modern the modern theory of evolution due to his book On the Origin of Species. Whereas an algorithm might come up with, this person died in Down, was known for On the Origin of Species, and
1: named Notorthalmus. Yes, these are, right. these are not shining examples of how the, <laughs> the algorithm behaves, are they? Uh, these are cases where the human beats the computer hands down, right? So we know this because we... Presented uh, outputs of various algorithms uh, to human judges, and also we gave them human uh, constructed referring expressions. And this is actually a domain where we are not able to do nearly as well, even as uh, human speakers. And
0: presumably, this this problem of trying to integrate the the common knowledge is kind of, or aspects of common knowledge or what is presumed common knowledge. Uh, are entering into that problem all the time. That yeah. The address case you gave, presumably the issue is that our process for locating an address doesn't involve considering whether the number of the house is unique and working it out from there. Right. But the computer has to be equipped with that kind of knowledge in order to make human-like referring expressions or referring expressions that are comprehensible to hearers.
1: Exactly, exactly. So the work you were just referring to, uh, which refers to to famous people like Darwin, takes that problem uh, as its starting point, as it were. Uh, So the research question there was very much, out of all this information about Darwin, which facts are worth mentioning? And the the research hypothesis, one of the research hypotheses here was that if a fact is relatively well known about Darwin among a large set of people, then that makes the fact more, more worth mentioning. That was only one of the heuristics that we used, because the fact that Darwin had two legs, right, is widely known, or at least widely assumed, and yet it's not very mentionable. So the, the the heuristic I'm 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 referring to here is not the only one, but it's one of the heuristics, one of the requirements, if you like, that the output of this algorithm uh, has to has to pass into or, in order to be uh, uh, generated, right? So the problem for my colleague Roman Cutlack was to find out what information is likely to be widely known, right? So that's a, a specific version of the common knowledge problem. It's not exactly the problem of do I know what you know and that you know that I know, and right? It's not exactly that problem, but it's related, okay? So what Roman did is given a fact about, for example, Darwin, he used search on the World Wide Web to find out how often this fact was mentioned somewhere. And the more often it was mentioned, the more likely it is that the fact is widely known. That was the reason. So, all of these are are assumptions up to this point, right? But of course, what, what Roman did was then ultimately build these heuristics into his algorithms, and evaluates the output of the algorithm, right? The output would be descriptions like the ones you just read out, and then human judges, of course, different judges, right, would judge the output. And that's where we, where we found the things that we were just talking about, so that, that humans can actually do this incomparably well, right? So this is a case, going back to your earlier question, if you want to build an algorithm, for referring to famous people, you could do worse than imitate human speakers. It's a very high level of achievement. So um,
0: presumably, there's also abstractly a parallel between this question of which of these properties will we talk about, which of these are likely to be helpful in enabling a, a hearer to identify the person we're talking about, which exactly. of these things are commonly known about the speaker um, to the more specific case talked about earlier in the book about um, salience properties or the relevant the relative salience of properties in their usefulness in uh, picking out a referent do you see a parallel there
1: let's see do you mean do are you talking about algorithms like the incremental algorithm which uses a, which use an order right a preference order of of attributes is is that is that the kind of salience you're yes
0: yeah I mean the, you make the distinction between uh, using attributes that would be maximally effective in pruning the search space in excluding possible candidate reference no. uh, and algorithms that refer or choose um, attributes in a way that's what we expect to encounter as as langu- language users.
1: Right. Probably the answer is no. If you look at, um, so maybe maybe it, it's good to, to introduce that with a few more words. So, yeah, one of the best known algorithms in this area, one of the oldest is the incremental algorithm. And basically what it does is um, very simple. It, it starts from an ordering of attributes from sort of most salient, as you say, right, to least salient. Um at the top will be things like color and then size right and then at the bottom there might be things like uh I don't know some really unimportant stuff right the stuff that's quite unlikely to be mentioned okay so the algorithm goes through that list from the top and asks at each point so it starts asking this from the very first very most salient attribute it asks If I use this attribute, for example, color, is that going to make any headway, right? In other words, uh, can I apply it to my referent, for example, by saying red? And if I do so, uh, am I going to get rid of any distractors? In other words, if if everything in the domain is red, then that's not a very good idea. So if that happens, I go to the next attribute, size maybe, and so on, and so on until I've accumulated enough attributes to identify my reference. That's in a nutshell, right, with the incremental algorithm. Now, so the, the question that we're talking about, the question that you're raising, is what is this preference order? What does it mean to be at the top or at the bottom of that? Is it maybe, does it have something to do with... What property gives me most mileage in terms of ruling out reference? One reason why the two are are very different is the preference order is going to be always the same, right? So if I have a a a domain in which everything is red, right, the incremental algorithm sort of doesn't know about that. It will still start looking at color, right, because it's up there in the preference order, always. Whether or not it's going to remove any distractions. So that's one, one reason why the two are different. The salience that you're talking about in the preference order and the kind of different kind of salience that might tell you whether a property is going to narrow down your search. But, but there's different stuff as well. If you look at concrete examples, for example, referring to famous people, if you had their driver's license, right, that would narrow down the search. That would be rather good. And yet, of course, driver's license is not going to be up there in the preference order, right? Because that property isn't mentioned very often, and right? And of course, you can ask further. Why not, right? And, and that's actually where 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 it gets really interesting, because of course psychologists have a lot to say about these things, right? They have all kinds of ideas about why, for example, indeed color is so high up there in that preference order. Uh, so uh, uh, color, apparently, in in human perception, has sort of directness. That that most other qualities, even visual qualities, lack. Uh, codability is the is the is, is the term that's often associated with that uh, with that notion. So colors are highly codable. Size is also quite highly codable, etc. Yeah. Right. Driver's license a little bit less. So, so presumably we're talking here about properties of our brain that you know our ancestors long ago had already, right, and they didn't know about private classes.
0: Presumably, this this issue of codability could manifest itself for two different reasons. One, because it's convenient to us as speakers to talk about properties that are really salient to us.
1: Yeah.
0: Or because we're being cooperative, and we, we know that, or well, we assume that properties that are really salient to us are also really salient to the hearer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's, in some sense, mutually evident that the object is red or blue or big in a way that I don't know, other properties of it maybe aren't, aren't quite so mu- obviously mutually evident. Um, so I guess a question would be do you take a view on whether this is really a, a hearer thing or a speaker thing, or both?
1: I guess for the concrete questions that we're looking at at the moment, the two are very difficult to tease apart Because you and I are both human, therefore, if psychologists are right about codability, both of us will have color somewhere very high up, right at the top of our preference order, to use that term. So it's then very difficult, right? If I speak, then giving color that prominence is both easy for me as a speaker and easier for you as a hearer. So that makes it very difficult to say very difficult to determine whether I, as a speaker, do it for you or, or for me. There's, of course, a whole body of work associated with the, the, the term audience design, and there's a fair amount of stuff about it in the book, uh, which sort of asks versions of your question yes, so for this and that behavior, in let's say speaking behavior do we do it for the hearer or do we do it because we can't help ourselves, so to speak? Uh, sometimes it's it's possible to tease these two apart, sometimes it isn't.
0: Turning, if I may, to this this idea of sort of cooperativity, um a point you make is that it's it's sometimes helpful in discussing this to appeal to ideas like Grice's maxims of communication. Yeah. Um but in common with a lot of practical um approaches based on linguistic principles, would it be fair to say you see those as you know, potentially helpful but underspecified when the, when push comes to shove?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's that's a, a view that, that many people will agree on, that the Gricean maxims, right, so ideas that you need truthful, other things being equal that you need to give the right amount of information, that you give relevant information, okay? So if you read uh, Grice's papers about that and further developments of them, relevance theory and stuff, then all that is very sensible. Uh, I I think researchers in in different areas agree about that. Uh, But underspecified, indeed. So to give the right amount of information, not too much and not too little, well, that doesn't tell us very much, does it? Right? So, for example, concretely, going back to some of the things we've already talked about, go back to my example of the place where I live. Okay? If we read the Griceum maxim of quantity, which says don't give more information than required. If I give you the house number and the street number, and maybe the neighbor, the name of the the, the neighborhood as well, is that a breach of the Gricean maxim? Am I giving you too much? Or should we interpret it more cleverly and say, no, 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 the right amount of information doesn't mean the amount of information that logically identifies the referent, but... It means the right of amount of information that allows you to find the referent in reasonable time. So if, if the latter, if that's what Grice meant, well, yeah, that uh, you need a lot of space to write that down, right? And nail it down in its, in its particulars. And, of course, the, a lot of those particulars we, as researchers, don't know yet. And some of this research is trying to flesh them out. Yeah, so we're trying to make the Gricean maxim more precise. Mm. I guess a related
0: aspect of that is the difficulty of being able to produce something that's optimal in that sort of narrow, traditional Gricean sense, mm. given a large domain of potential reference. Mm. But I think you, you you characterize that algorithm as being pretty unwieldy or what's pretty much unworkable to come up with Guaranteed minimal descriptions yeah. so presumably uh, as speakers, we want to be a bit selfish sometimes and just you know produce something that that'll do because actually it's less effort for us, even if it involves us saying a few more words than we would otherwise need to
1: well, as you sort of implied earlier, the two are rather difficult to tease apart, aren't they so here's a speaker. And suppose there's only one red object in the room, and they say, uh, my red chair. So they sh- the word chair doesn't add information, the word my doesn't add information, because there's only one red object, I'm sort of salient enough to be a plausible word. So, so, so suppose I, the speaker produces a rather longer expression than necessary. Do they do this because they can't help themselves? Or do they do this because it, a little bit of a redundancy can help the speaker? It's very difficult to tease these these things apart. So in recent experiments with uh, a number of colleagues of mine, uh, so Roger Van Kompel in, in Dundee, uh, in New in uh, Tilburg, uh, Albert Gatt in Malta, so we're trying to tease these, these things apart a little bit.
0: So are there circumstances under which speakers are particularly likely to produce referring expressions that seem to us fine as hearers but are technically, you know, violating Gricean quantity by being unnecessarily verbose?
1: Well, certainly the opposite happens a lot. Uh, for example, children. When children learn to speak, Um, It's well known that they underspecify quite a lot. Children below a certain age are not very good at at assessing the other guy's knowledge often. And you see this in the way they speak, concretely in the way they refer, because they often don't give you enough information. Uh, But also, indeed, children also show this opposite behavior sometimes of, for example... Where they could have said it, simply, they give you more information. They say the red chair or something like that, right? So children in particular uh, show this behavior where they apparently find it difficult to find that golden middle where, you, where they give you just the right of information. Sometimes there's not enough, so you wonder what chair. Sometimes they give you a little bit too much but of course, um, yeah. So that's uh, you see that in in children a lot, and I know of research that there's quite a lot of research going on. People are starting to get very interested in the question whether people on the autism spectrum um, maybe uh, show some of the same behaviour. But those are uh, the the jury is still out on that one, I believe.
0: Mm, interesting. So so in those cases. I mean there's there, there are a couple of kinds of uh egocentricity that could be going on in the sense of you know giving the wrong amount of information that makes it impossible to find the speaker's intended referent.
1: Yeah.
0: And presumably there's also know, would you characterize it as egocentric also if somebody describes uh, an object by all the attributes that they you know they perceive it to have even though you don't need all those in order to to identify it.
1: Exactly. This is a really interesting area from a point of view of experimental setup. So historically there are there's a line of research in which so Boas is is one of the proponents of that line of work where people have sort of systematically shown or argued that they had shown rather stark limitations of people's ability, speakers' ability to take the knowledge of the other guy into account, right? So, for example, there's one famous paper, uh, Wu et al., uh, not so long ago, where the experimenters showed that speakers used proper names rather often, where the hearer could not know what the proper name refers to, Okay. Um, I could say more about the setup. So these were sort of artificial proper names, right, which had to be learned during the experiment. A very clever setup, Okay. You can Mm -hmm. probably imagine that if you do that cleverly, then there can be proper names uh, where I know that you cannot know what it refers to. Okay? So lo and behold, these people found that speakers use, so misuse... in in their view, misuse proper names in that way, rather a lot. But then came along other researchers who looked at their data and said, wait, yes, these proper names are used, but they are almost always used in over-specification. So they did all kinds of follow-up experiments with Hebers in which they found out that... These proper names were never essential for understanding what the discourse was about.
0: So concretely, you're looking at a situation where I know that this guy's name is Fred. I know that you don't know his, his name is Fred. So rather than just identify him as Fred, I identify him as Fred, that man over there with the glasses.
1: Exactly. So it's a little bit as if you're teaching me, uh, you're, you're you're informing me that the guy is also named Fred. Exactly. So in the first paper, people said, oh, you're doing that incorrectly. You shouldn't have said Fred. And the second set of researchers said, wait a minute. No, that's not what's going on. The word Fred is there not to, to refer, but to teach you something.
0: Interesting. Yes. So, so what we find is that the referen- what seem to be referring expressions can also be doing double duty a lot of the time. That, you know, we're not only pointing out reference, but we're also Conveying something else about it, either either an other attribute that might be useful, like name, or maybe our attitude towards it, or
1: something of that nature. Exactly. So there's this famous paper, uh, Dale and Writer, 1995. That's the paper in which the incremental algorithm was was first uh, uh, presented in a, in a in a journal paper. Uh, they also have these nice examples of ex- exactly what you just said. So their example is one of their examples is please don't sit at the newly painted table where newly painted is not there to tell you what table but to explain why it's not such a good idea to sit there so that's what you just called double duty
0: you um go on in the second half of the book to discuss some extensions to the, the sort of simple problem of generating referring expressions and some of the challenges that arise and you discuss proper names there you another issue you discuss which i'd like to talk about a little is, is how one refers to sets of objects other than simply by stringing together a set of Descriptions that would work for referring to each of them individually. That seems like a much well, an even more complex problem. Is that actually the case? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah.
1: So, for example, the search space is is much larger, right? Um, If you have uh, n objects in your Mm -hmm. domain, you have two to the n to the power of n uh, subset of that domain. There are a lot of distractors there to be ruled out many more than if you're only interested in single individuals and
0: presumably also a lot of uh, descriptions in play or potential descriptions
1: yes absolutely yes also from a linguistic perspective yeah so sometimes you can get away with a very simple uh, referring expression like the cups or the chairs or the red chairs right Uh, but if the the two chairs have different colors. You, then you can't do that. You may have to say the red and the green chair. So all kinds of things going on there, right? So in, you might first try to generate the red chair and then the green chair, so you can sort of aggregate them together. And yeah, so there's lots of additional things going on over and above the ability to identify.
0: Again, it's, this seems like a problem that humans are able to solve if not optimally then at least pretty well and you give an example of page one hundred and eighty six where you note that it would be rather more natural to describe two dogs, one of which is a white poodle and one of which is a black Alsatian as the white poodle and the black Alsatian, rather than using a form like the dogs that are white or Alsatians and also the dogs that are black or poodles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or indeed the dogs that are black or white and Alsatians or poodles. Yeah. Even under circumstances when those would all pick out the same set, yeah. So presumably that's that's something that requires a lot of refinement on the computational side if you want. If your objective is to produce human-like referring behaviour,
1: yes, exactly. And often brevity is your first attempt, isn't it? So use or Horáček's work. That's what he was referring there mostly. Uh, Helmut Horacek in, in Germany, DFKI. Um, so, yes, he, he used sort of simple, you might call them, theory-improving rules that allow you to simplify a given referring expression so that you get a shorter one. And By and large, shorter ones are a little bit easier to process, a little bit more natural. That, that's the first stab at the problem. It's not always best, but it it, it comes fairly close. Yeah, so there are a lot of these these additional problems. So another one is so the one uh, that my colleague Albert Gatz uh, worked on a lot. So that's the problem of so if you have a complicated referring expression where you say something like you want to refer to two people, okay? Of course, it can be more than two. You probably don't want to say something like the Italian and the cook, right? even though the Italian might be a very efficient way to refer to one of the two people, and the cook might be a very efficient way to refer to the other, right? If you did this, you would be solving each of the two problems in a good way, but you would be solving the combined problem in a terrible way. What you want to say is something like the the, the, the Italian and the Spaniard, right? That's much better. That That was his intuition, and indeed we were able to 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 confirm that to confirm that idea right That that coherence the internal coherence of a plural referring expression is a very important factor in its acceptability
0: yeah and presumably this internal coherence is is helpful for reasons that again aren't really captured by any of the obvious things we would say about you know being efficient in narrowing down the the search space in principle but it exactly. has to, has to do with how we actually process those
1: exactly yes it can be neutral in terms of efficiency and brevity and all that. Yes.
0: another problem you discuss that, that I found very interesting um is how we use gradable properties in referring um because I'm interested in how it's getting slightly more of a handle on on that in linguistics but what are, the, what are the challenges in trying to integrate gradable properties within the kinds of computational models that you're discussing?
1: Right. So one challenge is to decide whether to use them at all. Right? Uh, do you want to say, what's a, what's a good example here? The, the man who is, you know, uh, six uh, mm-hmm. foot tall, or do you want to say the tall man? Right. That's one question. Another question is, suppose you do want to use a gradable term like tall, then, right, do you want to say big or tall, All right? So my colleague uh, Meg Mitchell, who did her PhD here, um, focused particularly on questions of that kind. In, in reality, if you, if you focus on a word like tall, right, or let's say size, okay, let's say size, but other, other attributes have this same, this same internal structure very often, simple algorithms and sim- simple accounts more generally pretend sort of that this is one unanalyzed attribute. But of course, in reality, uh, a thing has different dimensions, right? Size is composed of two or three dimensions. Right? So if I stand in, in front of a tall building, well I'm using the word tall now already, but it has three dimensions. I might refer to it as the tall building or as the large building. Uh, the depth of the building would be a little bit less uh, likely to be used in, in isolation. So her question is, so, with, with, which of these do we actually use in a, in a given case? So use, use machine learning and other and other techniques to to answer that question, so to go back to your take on this, one challenge is should I use gradable terms at all? Another is which ones, and then the third one is how do they how do they combine
0: yeah our um, our time is running a little short, so I'd like to wrap up by asking what what you see as being the greatest challenges to face. This research area of um, computational modeling of reference in the in the immediate future. Okay, uh, let me
1: make a list. I'll, I'll try to keep each point a little bit brief. One is collaboration. So when we refer, we often do this, of course, in dialogue, and in dialogue, speakers rely on a comeback. From behavior, right? So we don't always get it right immediately, but we wait for a response and then we add information if necessary. So that's what, what people call collaboration. And people have started, as Alexander Koehler and others, and, uh, a lot of people have started to model that computationally. That's you know, very challenging and very interesting. So that's one challenge. Uh, a very different challenge is other types of noun phrases so going back to the beginning of our conversation uh, so why referring expressions Um, it seems to me that yes referring expressions are sort of a very clear case of how noun phrases can be used so how about others if you put put aside so this whole book with all these approaches and you ask right changing the topic how do We make an algorithm that produces indefinite descriptions, quantified descriptions. There's huge literature in theoretical linguistics and formal semantics, like this famous book by uh, Peterson Westerstahl, right, Uh, with formal theories about quantification. Do we know anything about algorithms that produce these when the quantifier is not already in the input? I think we don't, right? So, for example, if you if you have a natural language generation program that starts from sensor data or something like that, weather data maybe, okay? Lots of numbers, uh, and that's your input for generating a weather report. Do we know how to go from those numbers to expressions like everywhere or in some places? I think our knowledge of that is very limited and it will be very interesting to see how work on referring expression generation might generalize to quantification indefinites generics that kind of thing so that will be my second challenge. The third challenge is to move move on from the what to the how if you. Will. What I mean by this is the following. The algorithms that are described in the book and tested in all these these experiments, at, at very best, what we find is that a particular algorithm does a pretty good job at simulating human behavior. That's at best because, as we've discussed, in complicated situations, these algorithms don't do very well yet. Okay? So at best, they simulate well. But... Do they work in a way that actually resembles what goes on in the human brain? We don't know yet. The book contains one or two studies where questions of that kind have started to be addressed. Most recently, people look at brain scans of different kinds to to see what happens, and, and brain researchers think they've discovered uh, an NREF effect. They think they know where in the brain uh, reference uh, uh, happens and when, uh, when it happens, so to speak, the time course of the, the phenomenon is. But that, that work, like a lot of brain research on language, is still in its infancy, and it would be extremely interesting to add that wet kind of research, if you like, to the computational work and the, the, the other experiments that, that have already been done. So those would be the three challenges that come to mind at the moment. Uh, there are the more obvious challenges that if you, if you go through the book, then the algorithms that are discussed early on are typically very well tested and we know a lot about them, right? We know how well they model human behavior. We often know how well they suit readers or hearers but if you go through the book towards the end where situations become much more complicated right the speaker doesn't quite know what the hearer knows or that kind of difficulty then they those algorithms have not been tested with the same rigor yet so is that sort of more humbler work a lot of which also needs to still be done
0: which um, which of these directions, if any, is, does your own work take you in? In the uh, at the moment,
1: ah, well, a different one. Um, so, at the moment, I'm very interested in East Asian languages. We may be familiar with this whole debate, which goes back a very long time, both in the West and in the East, if you like, where there is this idea that different languages or speakers of different languages, perhaps. Uh, make the trade-off between clarity and brevity in different ways. I'm using Gricean terms here, right? Uh, So the terms that have sometimes been used here is the distinction between hot and cool languages. So a hot language is a language that makes everything very specific, right? And doesn't keep the hearer guessing and doesn't let context play a huge role. A cold language or a cool language is one that does rely strongly on context for disambiguation and clarification. Right. So there's this old idea, uh, I think Juan is a, is a famous reference for that. The idea that uh, languages such as Mandarin are at the extreme cool end of that spectrum, whereas English is much further to the the hot end, right? My native language, Dutch, uh, is also supposed to be closer to that end. Partly because I'm learning Mandarin. So my my research often brings me to that country, to to, to, to China, and so I I started to learn Mandarin. And I started to be very intrigued by, well, among other things, how reference works in, in Mandarin. So I, I've just returned from a, from a sabbatical in, in, in China where we've done experiments sort of following in the track of the tuna experiments, right? Uh, where, where we try to figure out how Mandarin speakers behave, right? So there are all kinds of questions that you see coming here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do Mandarin speakers underspecify more than English speakers? I'm not so sure that they do. Now, I can say more, but... So, um, it sounds
0: like fascinating work and I very much look forward to hearing uh, more about it in the near future. But now our time's
1: up, so I have to say,
0: Kees van Deemte, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. That was a really intriguing conversation and I'll end up thinking probably quite a bit about the questions that you've asked.
0: I've been talking to Kees van Diemte about
1: computational models of referring. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.